0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living. With me, T Xiao Ik. I would like to start off with an excerpt from the World Health Organization's constitution. The enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health is one of the fundamental rights of every human being without distinction of race, religion, political belief, economic, or social condition. Now, it only takes a look around our own country here in Malaysia, sometimes no further than our own communities, to see that there are far too many people falling ill who shouldn't and far too many whose health needs are not being provided for. And if we look worldwide as crises and conflicts deepen, there are concerns that the fundamental right to health will only be increasingly eroded. So as we are... Well, a couple of weeks into the new year, but hopefully um, we can still look towards setting a a hopeful tone. Uh, I have in the studio with me today Rajat Khosla, Director of the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. And I'll be asking him to share his reflections on how we can rethink human rights in global health. And our conversation will be the first of a monthly series that we'll be doing on health and living this year, where we explore global health issues and threats that will demand our attention on a local, regional, as well as global scale. Rajat, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: Pleasure to be here, T. Thank you for having me.
0: So. I guess um, a lot of our conversation um, will be touching on very, very broad concepts uh, and I'll be getting you to help us um, relate them to our daily lives really because at the end of the day uh, on our show we talk about how health issues um, are part and parcel of uh, our daily experiences. Now if we look at human rights they are intended to ensure human dignity and the elimination of repressive and oppressive processes. Help us to understand this and why is it said that health is a human right?
1: Certainly. And to start with the statement that you just read out, uh, in the sense that human rights, as you said, are to ensure human dignity and the elimination of repressive and oppressive processes. And what bigger repression or oppression could be when an individual is not able to realize their own health and enjoy it to the fullest extent possible? However, to Clarify it further for the audiences, when we talk about the right to health or the right to the highest attainable standard of health, as the WHO constitution talks about, what we are talking about is not just in terms of absence of disease and infirmity and freedoms from oppression or repression, as we talked about, but also an entitlement to ensure that individuals are able to access health services, goods and facilities that they need to realize the right to their fullest extent. Now that would mean in certain cases, access to primary healthcare facilities, access to surgical procedures. If there is such a need at the tertiary level, Or it may also need access to what we described as the underlying determinants of health, without which an individual cannot realize their health in the first place, such as access to water, sanitation facilities, nutrition, and so on.
0: And the nuance is further sort of refined, right? They say health is the fundamental right um, and I'm going to emphasise the following here, without distinction of race, religion, political belief, economic or social condition. And So um, what does it mean when we insist that there shouldn't be conditions to accessing that right?
1: It basically means is that everyone, everywhere, should have equal access to the opportunities to realise their health. That does not mean that we can guarantee a right to be healthy because that also depends on decisions we take about our own lives. If we decide to smoke, if we decide to drink alcohol and maintain unhealthy habits, We would fall sick and we will have the repercussions that will result out of it. What that statement that you read out essentially means is that everyone should have an equal opportunity and equal access to realize those rights. Issues around race, religion, caste, ethnicity, belief, economic condition should not impair an individual's basic opportunities or capabilities to have those rights realized.
0: But do we see that in reality today?
1: Not really. And that's the uh, unfortunate reality of the times that we live in. Individuals often face multiple and intersecting injustices in terms of their ability to realize their rights, whether it is injustices they face because of being displaced out of their own homes, out of their own countries, and therefore have to live as migrants or refugees in another country, or individuals who face powerlessness in their day-to-day lives, in the sense that they do not feel uh, access is possible to the basic health components those living in poverty, for instance, or in many societies that we find women and girls not being able to exercise their health and human rights in a manner that will ensure the bodily autonomy and the access to services such as reproductive health, maternal health services that they so need. So unfortunate reality is that even though we have this aspirational statement that has now been recognized for over 75 years, not only in WHO constitution, in international covenants, in national constitutions around the world, we find that there are discriminatory accesses that individuals face and inequalities are right not only between countries, but also within countries in large extents.
0: Mm. And would you say, because what you've described, there are certain people who are most vulnerable, Um, would you say that discrimination towards their right to accessing um, health and health care Are these systemic?
1: Let me take a step back um, and start with what Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights starts by saying that, born, we are all free and equal in dignity and in rights. And that's basically from where we start the read of our human rights and everything else. Um, Unfortunately, what we see, the statement is not often true because of both power relations and power asymmetries that exist in every society is in different forms, shapes and combinations, which then inform the kind of political processes and systems that underpin how health is defined and what is determined in terms of ability of individuals to access healthcare services. In certain country contexts, we find that individuals who do not have national domicile status, such as those that are Mm -hmm. refugees or migrants, do not have equal access to services, even basic services. Um, Now that is very short-sighted, because individuals, if in your countries, do not have same access to services, we do have the likelihood of them falling sick and then implications in terms of health systems and how they get impacted. We do also find that systems often discriminate and have biases uh, Mm -hmm. in the way they are structured. Often, individuals that belong to other ethnicities, caste, are denied access to services because of provider biases in certain cases. Um, And so systemic nature of such discrimination manifests itself in different ways, whether it is through caste, race, religion, or other things uh, that tend to play in intersections with each other.
0: Mm, yes, that that concept of um, intersecting injustices, right? Can you help us to understand um, how different, you know, uh, people who are di- vulnerable in different aspects of their life will be vulnerable in terms of their access to health as well.
1: So. When we look at injustices, we find increasingly, and there is evidence from uh, different regions of the world, is that these injustices don't often manifest themselves as linear pathways and in and of themselves. So we find that an individual who, for instance, is living in poverty, and if you are a woman living in poverty, and that you are living in a rural area and a woman living in poverty, the kind of intersection that you face because of your gender, your place of residence, and your income level works together and creates a level of vulnerability that is impairing in your ability to realize your health and human rights. Now, if you are the same women, if you are an indigenous woman and you belong to one of the neglected tribes uh, in certain cases, you find that that vulnerability compounds itself even more. And that is what we mean by intersectionality as such, is that we need to look at these issues as as composite, as in an integrated manner, so that we can address these vulnerabilities, not just as one of ad hoc solutions, which often do not work, but as an integrated process, which address and goes to the core of why these inequalities happen, and to ensure that those individuals, that women that I was giving you an example of, has the access to services, irrespective of where she stays, and irrespective of uh, her uh, indigenous status. Mm.
0: We'll go for a quick break and continue this conversation when we come back. I'm speaking to Rajat Kosla, Director of the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health on the show today. And we're discussing how do we uphold health as a human right? We'll be right back on Health and Living BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. ik My guest joining me in the studio today is Rajat Khosla, Director of the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. We're discussing health as a human right. What does that mean and how do we rethink our systems, structures, approaches uh, in health and uh, healthcare delivery in order to ensure that as the WHO has set out, health is accessed as one of the fundamental rights of every single human being, regardless of who you are, where you live, um, what your income levels are. Rajat, I want to ask you about how we seem to assign a different value um, to the lives of people from different countries or different communities or different socioeconomic levels. Because if you look at certain communities and countries um, where Thousands, if not millions of people are dying from diseases like malaria, HIV, TB, which actually have safe, effective and affordable treatments. But they are living in places where the health services are also the most inadequate. And I was reading about um, the work of the late Paul Farmer who called these deaths, and I quote him, stupid deaths. And really, we don't even blink an eye anymore about the deaths of people in the most vulnerable communities um, and low-income countries. I I wanted to get your thoughts on this, Rajat, How is it that we've allowed this, you know, kind of travesty to continue not only for years, but but decades, really, when you consider that medicine and health technology has actually made such leaps and bounds in terms of what it can achieve today?
1: You touch on a very important issue, and thank you for for, for quoting late uh, Paul Farmer in that regard. And Paul very famously said, if health is a human right, who is a human? And how do we determine who is a human in that context? Um, And unfortunately, as, as you very rightly pointed out, increasingly, we are finding a very dehumanizing rhetoric in global public policy when we are talking about health and human rights. So you are absolutely right. When we are witnessing death and disease happening in countries, we we often don't even blink an eye because we think it does not affect us. We think that's somebody else's problem. Yeah. That's for somebody else. It's for that government, that country to take care of. I think COVID-19 was one big example when we saw the failure. Of international solidarity, when we saw vaccines were not available to people living in low middle income countries, when vaccines were being stockpiled in high income country. And this is unfortunately, increasingly building up is the disparities that we are seeing between countries and what we are also looking at in terms of the, uh, from a perspective of privatization of healthcare, which is taking hold, which is almost putting profit maximization as the incentive, not in terms of addressing the health needs of populations at that level. Um, And I think this is a challenge for governments around the world, not only in terms of what is happening within their own domestic context, but what is also happening in other countries. And if you look at climate change or pandemic experience, as I was talking about, we do look at the transboundary effect of these diseases mm-hmm. and these experiences that we should be taking a note of. And this is something, uh, as, as, as you may know, is one of the key issues of discussions right now as the pandemic accord gets discussed at the World Health Assembly uh, this year.
0: Mm. And, you know, you brought up the determinants of health earlier. And while we may think that being healthy comes from having access to medicine, uh, brick-and-mortar medical facilities, but actually it's even more fundamental than that. Things like food and housing are among the most important social determinants of health. Can you explain how inequities in these um, other basic rights also in many ways directly affect the health of people?
1: Oh, Absolutely, and, and, and I think this is this goes to the core of uh, our lives, our well-being, our health as such. Um, and this is why many have started talking and, and aspiring for, you know, an approach which talks about an integrated planetary health, one health approach that brings these different dimensions together because these are so intertwined and interlinked with each other. One cannot realize health only by providing people with the medicines and diagnostics or the brick and mortar, as you talked about. If I don't have access to safe water and sanitation, that means my propensity to fall ill will be many times higher than any other individual who does have access to those facilities. Now, surprisingly, we find that that communities that are being denied access to safe water, sanitation, or adequate nutrition are also who are not only at the lowest income quintiles, living in deprived communities and areas, but also are often who belong to marginalized racial groups, ethnicities, or religions. So this is where the compoundedness, the intersectionality, starts to play together. Now, unfortunately, we do not plan our public health policies or health systems in a manner that addresses these issues in a coordinated way. But we know the benefits of doing that, because we do know the benefits of providing a child, for instance, with safe water, sanitation facilities, and adequate nutrition meals at school means that the child not only comes to school, stays at school, but also uh, continues to grow and thrive in that environment and ultimately con- contribute to the economies as well. Mm-hmm. Now we do need that longitudinal thinking, and we are seeing some attempts being made within our local context in Malaysia with the Health Transformation Plan and the White Paper that has now been passed mm-hmm. to start working in that direction. And I really applaud the government uh, for that effort and and very much looking forward to the success of it. So I think the more we bring that coordinated approach, the more we are likely to. Be be successful. It's not easy. It requires intersectoral collaboration. It also requires us to get out of our comfort zones. Um, And as health professionals, we do need to think about not just, you know, the hospital Mm. areas, but also why people are coming Mm. to those clinics in the first place.
0: Speaking of comfort zones, I think um, most of our listeners um, perhaps are more uh, within the middle income um, strata. And we may think of issues when it comes to lack of basic rights as affecting the extremes of society. But um, there are many very pertinent and very alarming health problems that threaten all of us across um, your income uh, group as well. Non-communicable diseases um, don't discriminate uh, when it comes to um, what whatever social economic conditions you're living in. How do you see intersectionality playing a role uh, or where could it be addressed when it comes to a huge health threat like non-communicable diseases.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, to you touched on a very important one. Firstly, I don't think we still take non-communicable diseases seriously enough. 70% global disease burden comes from non-communicable diseases. Mm-hmm. Now, that's very telling uh, in terms of how these uh, work out themselves. Now, what is interesting is that actually if you look at non-communicable diseases, whether it is ob- obesity, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disorders, and so on and so forth, that you find that um, while they do affect populations across the spectrum, and it is, you know, related to our diets, our living patterns, our physical activity, our environment in which we live in, and how that affects an individual, we do find that while the those in the upper income categories might have better opportunities that they can be rushed to uh you know private care facilities and have access to the
0: life-saving treatment, those
1: at lower income strata do not have that. And also do not have the opportunity to change their dietary patterns or have the opportunities to go out for uh, and and have uh, the time and resources for physical activity Mm -hmm. uh, as such. So I think this is where we see the intersectionality analysis becoming very clear. And this is where also, if you look at it from a burden on the overall health system. You realize that there is no way one can keep on ignoring it or classifying these diseases as those that affect the rich and the wealthy. They might be able to pay their way and get for those treatments, but it is affecting poor as much.
0: Yeah. So then um, it sort of also touches on the point where you talk about um, the increasing privatization of healthcare, and you start to see um, two tiers. People who can afford it um, can get the best, and people who can't. Um, in Malaysia, I think we're very fortunate. We have a public healthcare system that provides you the services regardless of your income level, but you're still disadvantaged in having to wait amid a very uh, system that's sort of straining at the seams, right? Your thoughts on how do we look at this dimension of capitalism and privatisation in healthcare? And do you think health should be a public good where no one can be excluded from its use and where the use by one group does not diminish the availability of it to others?
1: Uh, absolutely <laughs> could not agree with you more and, and 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 as a matter of fact the director general of uh, world health organization said as much health first and foremost is a human right and must be looked as a global global good and a global common as such and and, and i think your question is complex in terms of how how do we address these issues when we do have at one end less resources available strains on health systems to deal with the complexity of health challenges and at the other end that we have uh, a growing rise and might of the private sector Mm -hmm. in these areas i think we need to look at both of those issues together but also separately i think the answer to the first lies in ensuring that there are ways to incentivize greater public investment in health systems. Public investments in health systems has been dwindling over the years across countries around the world. We put so little towards our health, no wonder we have these challenges that we face. Uh, and then this is, I'm saying, is across the spectrum. And we look at same trends in low middle income countries as we see in high income countries as well. Um, and And so we do then find that the health systems and then there is challenges in terms of new diseases, burdens, and how do you address that and shortages of health workforce. Now, unfortunately, fiscalization or privatization and market dynamics are seen as a quick fix. Let's bring the private sector and that's going to solve the problem. And that, unfortunately, is not true and we have examples and evidence now from around the world that just privatizing goods and facilities such as healthcare does not necessarily mean it results in better access it on the contrary often means is that inequalities deepen out because those who could pay for private sector and so that goes to your point about a two tier system that gets in whole do that, whereas the others. And then it also incentivizes the government to not invest in the public healthcare system. The challenge with private sector we also have is lack of accountability, you know, in terms of what are the regulatory elements, who are they being accountable to, but also the kind of lobbying practices and techniques that are often used, which means that there is emphasis built in on things which are profit maximizing in nature, rather than that addresses the welfare of the population as such. So we do need to look at the issue of privatization of healthcare and for that matter of social goods and services, rich at large, with a level of skepticism, but with the idea in terms of what can we do to improve public investments in health systems and what might be the role of private sector. I'm not saying they don't have any role, but I'm saying is on what conditions.
0: Mm. What is the role? I mean, the private sector is here. I mean, we look at Malaysia. The private Mm. sector is uh, in terms of healthcare, It's a thriving one. How can we sort of um, moderate the impact uh, or sort of the negative impacts of privatization? How can they play a role? let's say for the Malaysian population?
1: Well, I think it has to be on the terms set up by the government. It has to be, that should be point number one, right? On what grounds, what are the rules of engagement with which we are engaging the private sector in this case? Um, It's, as I said, it's not inevitable. Malaysia has achieved, universal health coverage way back in 1980s, much before many other countries. So, Malaysia certainly can do it, has done it. The question is, how does it continue to do it, right? So, But let's look at it more broadly than that and not just within the domestic context. The challenge is that we often have, when we look at private sector, is a lack of transparency and accountability with which the engagement is being fostered. We do not know how service fees are being deliver, uh, being determined. We do not know uh, how these services are being catered. And so no wonder they are only being accessed by people in upper income categories, not by the poor, or the most vulnerable in the societies. So as a partner to the government, to fill the gaps where the government is not able to, one can look at the role, but it has to be part of a public policy debate, not just as a shifting of burden from the government to the other.
0: Mm. Um, The point you made earlier about how people who are from low-income communities, not only are they not able to afford... Uh, say, private health services, but they may not be able to change um, sort of uh, their lifestyles or adopt these uh, certain practices that are recommended for the prevention of diseases, uh, for instance. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? How do their living conditions and experiences prevent them from being able to pursue uh, the practices that are intended to either help them prevent non-communicable diseases or at least um, reduce the burden of it.
1: Yep. And, and, you know, it's unfortunate reality uh, of our times is uh, that it's almost uh, health plays out uh, as, as some would describe it as a postcode lottery. Where do you live, almost determines how healthy would you be or how unhealthy you would be. And this is because of the kind of inequalities within the societies that we are starting to witness now. Um, And, you know, uh, famous economist Amartya Sen categorized this in his uh, seminal work through an approach which looks at uh, capabilities and justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you look at uh, the work of uh, Professor Sen, what it essentially talks about uh, in basic terms is why is it that certain individuals lack the capabilities to have the same opportunity as others. And unless we address that lack of capabilities for certain individuals, and now that lack of capability might be because of lack of income, mm-hmm. lack of access to safe housing, lack of access to safe potable water, lack of access to sanitation services. Unless we are able to address that, it, it hardly makes any sense to say, well, you are unhealthy because of the way you live. Sure, we know that person is living in precarious conditions, but what are we doing to address that? The moment we start addressing those issues, the moment we will also see that that individual's need for healthcare services would also start decreasing because they will be able to deal with a lot of things that make them sick or ill in the first place. So it is that process that we need to understand and look at it in terms of not only as one size fits all solutions that tend to determine health policy making, but recognising that we actually first need to go to people who are farthest out in this process. Because the moment we make the health system work for that person living in that shanty, without water, without sanitation or toilets. And if the health system is working for them, it's working for everybody.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, But we're talking about interventions that are beyond the reach of those who are only working within healthcare or or biomedical. How do we, and this is going to um, require even a sort of rethinking or upheaval of our structures and institutions. Um how do we look at that, perhaps in a Malaysian context, you know, to be more, uh, even more specific?
1: Um, no, absolutely. And, and, and I think this is how we define what we understand by health, right? And if you define health the way WHO defines health, which says it's not only just the absence of disease and infirmity, but also well-being of populations. The moment we come to that, then the moment we realize that health is not only about medicines clinics, brick and mortar, as you said at the start of our conversation. If we do that, then we come to the question that it is not just the role of the health ministry and people working within the health ministry who who do a wonderful job uh, with the resources that are provided to them, but it it requires an all-of-government approach. It requires partnerships with the Ministry of Education. It requires partnership with the Ministry of Food and Agriculture. It requires partnership with Ministry of Finance because ultimately somebody's got to pay for it. So an all of government approach is what we often also see as lacking. And this is where we also think if health is a priority, it has to be a priority, not just for the Honourable Minister of Health, it has to be the priority right at the top because the moment we see That kind of a leadership coming in into healthcare system, we see things start changing. And we actually have a very good example. Going back to your point about the domestic situation, we do have, and and I really compliment the government on the passing of the health white paper, um, which is a transformational plan. It will take a long time to achieve that. By all means, but it is an ambitious plan and that will require an all-of-government approach. And this is where if you look at the priorities, whether they are around planetary health, non-communicable diseases, etc., that the plan talks about, we do have those conversations now starting to gain hold on how we're going to bring these different pieces together to make it happen. And, And it can be done. It can be done, and and we've just done it, right? If we could do it under COVID, we could do it again. (laughs)
0: That's very true. Yes, COVID (laughs) is a prime example of um, how we did that. Um, Minus, hopefully, minus the uh, sort of inequities in terms of access, which I think comes from the already ingrained structural and systemic uh, inequities. Uh, Would that whole-of-government approach address the um, intersecting injustices?
1: It may or it may not. I think it may in the sense that if we do have a whole-of-government approach, we will have, for instance, reflections from Ministry of Education. Why are girls dropping out of schools? What is happening there? Is it because of lack of toilets in the school in certain countries? Why are kids uh, not getting uh, midday meals in the schools and nutritional diets? Um, Or we will hear from um, Ministry of Food and Agriculture in terms of lack of uh, nutritious diets, etc. The reason I say it may or it may not is that a whole-of-government approach could give the parameters of it, but unless there is an intentionality, and a purposefulness with which we work on it, it may not happen. Because, you know, one thing, and you used a very uh, useful phrase saying, is health a uh, global good? Mm -hmm. Um, It certainly is. But what we do see when we do aspire for things to be taken as a global good or a global common, we do also risk a tragedy of commons that everybody thinks it's somebody else's responsibility and nobody does what needs to be done. And we need to avoid that. And this is where an intentionality, a policy framework becomes extremely important to delineate how is it we are going to work together, who's going to take leadership on what, and how we are going to get there?
0: You make it sound very simple.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm a firm believer that things can change if we work together.
0: Mm, All right. Now, governments are driven, I think, uh, primarily by um, fiscal considerations. So you talked earlier about incentivizing um, public investment into health. Um, How can we do that? What is your plea or argument to the Malaysian government to invest more into health?
1: Well, I think the Malaysian government realizes that. I think uh, there, is, there are conversations uh, through this uh, health white paper and the transformational plan that the government is working on already in place. But uh, I think what it requires is to realize that uh, healthcare is not a cost. It's an investment. We need to change that perspective. And we, at the moment we change that perspective, we look at it from an economist's perspective, sitting in the Ministry of Finance, for instance, is that why should I be giving more resources, more percentage of the budget to health? And we actually have just yesterday a uh, report that was released at the World Economic Forum, which says for every dollar invested in women's health care, there is three times return. Mm. And if you get it right, there's a trillion dollar gain to be made across uh, global economies by achieving better outcomes for women's health. So we know the evidence is there. But there is, you know, and this is where it gets uh, rather perplexing because, for instance, uh, the the Swedish institute working on peace and security recently uh, put out the data. And if you look at military expenditures in countries, suddenly there are billions of dollars to be found for things which are often, you know, prospective in nature, protecting you know against it. But we do have life threats with people's healthcare where we still struggle for even finding the basic 2-3% of GDPs to mm-hmm. be invested. So mm-hmm. I think we do need to have that mindset shift that looks at health, not just as a cost that has to be paid or a bill for the government, but an investment which will reap uh, multi-fold benefits. Mm-hmm.
0: Would you say that global institutions are playing their leadership role? I mean, um, organisations like the United Nations and the WHO have been criticised for not showing stronger leadership um, and authority what What are your thoughts on this coming from where you're sitting <laughs>
1: <laughs> No, and, and having worked for both those organisations and uh, I, I do hold them in very high regard and esteem I don't, don't want to sound uh, like an apologist or defend uh, in any way but at the same time the two points which I want to say um, one if you look at the budgets of some of these organizations and the mandate that they have been given to perform, they're minuscule. The budget of the World Health Organization is less than the budget of a hospital in New York. Oh, That's the reality of it. And so if that's the parameter that we are working with, you can see the impediment that we are putting on the organization. The second is the issue is that these are organizations made of the member states, So the member states are the ones that determine what these organizations can and cannot do. Mm -hmm. If the member states do not pass the relevant policies, such as the pandemic accord that is in negotiation, there is very little that the Director General of WHO can do when the next pandemic happens, mm-hmm. whoever that might be. Yeah. They're so, also
0: not meant to be a global police, they, are they? We mm-hmm. haven't given them that yeah.
1: mandate. Yeah. Uh, so I think this is where we do, I, I, and I'm sure they can do much better, even within the re- relevant resources. And there are constant discussions about transformation and about plans to improve services and how they can do that. And But at the same time, these are organizations, what we make them out to be, and these, these, these should be held to account. But At the same time, we also need to look at our uh, conduct within those spaces.
0: Mm -hmm. So it'll come back to the individual member states. It comes back to um, the state actors, the governments. It comes back to that... Intentionality and purposefulness that you talked about, re reimagining, rethinking uh, what the well-being um, of our people uh, should be. Where should it come from? Um, two thoughts from you to wrap up. Um, first, what will be urgent um, as we see inequities deepening? Um, I feel not improving despite all the talk. Um, what will be urgent? this um, next few years?
1: I think what is urgent in the next few years is to reinvigorate a sense of international cooperation and global solidarity. Uh, WHO Director General time and again in COVID-19 said we are all in this together and none of us is safe unless all of us are safe. Unfortunately, it was far from true, the way countries behaved and operated. I think we need to do better. And I do need to, I think this is not just a, a aspirational goal for the future or the horizon. This is the need of the hour. And if we do not come together, and if we do not have that purposefulness with which we work with each other across our national boundaries, we are doomed. Uh, and, And I think this, for me, is one of the most urgent things, is to make sure international cooperation. Article 1 of the UN Charter talks about the need to cooperate on issues of global purpose. We need to do that in a purposeful manner. That's one. The second, if I may say, I think we do need to look at the role of private sector carefully. The powerful private actors in health, in public goods more broadly, and the influence that they are wielding needs to be looked at it carefully, not just in terms of pharmaceutical companies or those who are engaged in production of countermeasures, but across the spectrum, what role they have, how do we look at it, and how are they being implemented? And if I may add a third, I think the third for me would be the role of technology and uh, digitization, artificial intelligence, and how do we deal with it? Um, And one has to look at, again, what are the parameters with which we are going to be looking at the use of AI in global goods like health and what implications it will have? It's fast catching up. Mm -hmm. We need to set the rules now before... It's too late.
0: Mm. We are catching up with the technology, in fact. Exactly. Um, And so the final thought would be, um, are you optimistic?
1: Absolutely. I'll not be here if I'm not optimistic. But I also think uh, optimism and hope is is useful. But what we also need is courage and courage to do the right things and to take the right steps. And and I'm very hopeful from that, that I can see some people, governments doing those Mm. courageous steps.
0: Courage doesn't come from a show of force, right? Which yeah. we do see uh, in many countries right now. Courage comes from looking at, like you said, those who are at the furthest reaches, those exactly. who are most vulnerable and um, what their needs are. Thank you so much, Rajat, for this conversation today. I've been speaking to Rajat Kosla, Director of the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. This has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9.
1: You have been listening to a podcast